For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, now, some of us like to consider ourselves uh, the type of person who's up for an adventure. Uh, our next guest is certainly one of those people, not just someone who had an adventurous idea, but actually followed through on it. Uh, in his early 20s, he decided you know what, I'm going to sail around the world, uh, perhaps inspired by the great John Sanders, who we've had uh, on this program previously. Uh, at the time, didn't actually have a boat to sail. There was no GPS, no Google, of course, uh, just a compass, presumably, and the stars in the night sky to guide him. Uh, thankfully, he made it, and at the time, he became the youngest Western Australian to actually make it around the world. That was in 1983, and to this day, he still competes on the water. So let's hear all about the adventurous life of Mark Taylor. Mark, how are you? Morning, Tim. How are you? Going well, thanks. Good. It's, uh, I, I hate to just, you know, get the elephant in the room out of the way early, but when you say Mark Taylor, you know, just to clarify to people. That's not the, not the You're Australian. the original. You're the original, the original Mark Taylor. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark, you're on dry land here. Is this, is this where you feel most comfortable or, you, or, or, or is your happy place out in the water? Oh, look, Tim, I'd have to say my happy place is on the water. I mean, that's when I have a lot of fun. You know, I still race my windsurfer these days. I've got a small yacht down at Mounts Bay. I go to the beach surfing, go on surfing trips overseas. So, yeah, I'd say that that would be my happy place for sure, yeah. 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 We're going to talk in some detail about your extraordinary round-the-world trip uh, in the early 80s. Uh, does it seem like yesterday to you or does it seem a pretty distant memory? I mean, do you remember you know, the chronology of events really clearly or is it just some sort of boyhood adventure that you went on? Yeah, no, it's, sort of, it's funny that um, you say that, Tim. Um, you kind of remember lots and lots of small bits about it. Um, mm. The person I went around with, Pete, uh, he's still I still play golf with him these days, but, you know, we often talk about it together and, and there's some of the stuff that he brings up. I thought, oh, yeah, I've forgotten all about that. But, yeah, um, yeah there's some very, very vivid memories still of that uh, yeah. sort of three years of my life for sure. Well, that's good. Yeah. We'll have plenty to chat about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you're the eldest of six boys. That's right, yeah. yeah. I've got to ask, when you decided to get out in the water and, and, and you know, leave Perth for shores distant, were you just after a bit of me time? Were you eager to get out of the busy household and being the eldest of six boys? Uh, well, I was actually second eldest. Um, oh, second eldest, yeah, right? Yeah, second eldest. Yeah. I, I think Either I'd, way, that's a competitive household, that's right? That's right, yeah. Well, there's yeah, six boys. You know, they're all sort of spread about by a couple of years. So yeah. I, I, I used to sail with my eldest brother. We sailed together as, as juniors, and I've sailed with most of my brothers somewhere, you know, some part of the world or, or wherever. We've all sailed together. But it was more about um, not leaving home. Home was pretty happy sort of place. So, mm. you know, it was all pretty good there. I mean, we all shared a, a small house and, you know, we ha I remember we had one one bathroom amongst, you know, eight of us, my poor mother, you know. Wow. <laughs> but, yeah, the sailing thing was just in my blood, I think. I mean, my father yeah. taught me how to sail early and um, got us into the yacht club and bought us yachts when we were little kids and um, it was just something that I wanted to do. And, and having someone like John Sanders in, in the in the in the news all the time it was yeah. you know well I mean John can do it and 
we knew the boat, I knew the boat that he had and, and uh, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, it can be done. So it was quite inspiring to have someone like him to, to sort of follow and, um, and, and, and realise that it wasn't, that, wasn't yeah. that difficult to do that sort of stuff. So did you grow up by the water? Yeah, well, my father was um, the manager of Avis Renicar, and uh, Avis Renicar used to be up where the old 6PR offices are up in Hill Street. Right. So the river was just down the road over Langley Park, and we had yep. the river there. And um, when we were kids, you know, being my father was busy, and well, there were six of us, so my mother didn't really, you know, there wasn't a lot of supervision. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when we were kids, uh, we got out of three, my three brothers, we, we, um, we got we made a little raft out of three foam surfboards, put them all together, tied them together, and put a little mast on it, made out of a broomstick, I guess it was, and, yeah. and we got a sheet from my mum and drew. So mum was missing a broom for a while. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, drew a um, skull and crossbones on the sheet, and we dragged it all down down Hill Street across Langley Park and and launched it um, in the river there, you know, at, um, in East Perth. And all jumped on board. And uh, all th- sorts of stuff in the water around East Perth at that point in time too. Yeah, man. yeah. Well, there's a tip. That's why I was just <laughs> yeah. going to get to that. Um, yeah. And my, my youngest brother, Dave, he would have only been, or he would have been seven at the time. And we were sort of nine and, you know, we were pretty young kids. But my mum said, oh, yeah, you can do that. That's all right. You know, so we did, we went down there, chucked it in the water and actually sailed it and paddled it straight across the river to South Perth where the big tip was. There was a big rubbish tip over there and we sort of foraged around there a bit. And um, yeah. And jumped back on the raft and came back to the um, at the other side of the um, shore near Langley Park and dragged it all back up to Hill Street and that was our mm. first sort of adventure on the water. Yeah. Pretty cool having that basically as your backyard. Fantastic, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we did another trip. Our longest trip on the raft was um, we. Oh, but uh, it's barely a raft, isn't it? How, well, did, how was, did how did you get more than one person on there? Well, we were only little kids, but yeah. there was three <laughs> three cool lights. You know the cool light, and we yeah. had sort of. Tied two like that and then just one across. Just roped together. Roped together, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, if, if you saw that out in the water now, yeah, someone would probably call Well, that's call exactly the right. Or yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> I was just going to say our next trip, our biggest trip was my father's sort of, we did this a couple of times to South Perth, but my dad says, oh, well, you know, you, you might as well try and go for a bit of a longer trip. So he, he got us in the car with a raft and took us to Mounts Bay Sailing Club, which is up near Royal Perth in Matilda Bay there. Mm. And we sailed, the three of us again, sailed from Mounts Bay all the way down the river under the Narrows Bridge down to Barrack Street. And that was like Brilliant. a big, big trip. And um, in fact, just as we we're going into the Narrows Bridge, I think the police boat came up to us and said, Is that know, right? Yeah, came up and said, Are you guys all right? What are you doing? <laughs> so, yeah, that was, uh, was, must have been a little speck on the horizon for these guys. But we just drifted. It took us about four hours to do that distance. With and, little kids on board. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. No life jackets. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, it was the 80s, man. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was all sort of part and parcel of what you did in those days. So yeah. it wasn't the 80s. It would have been the 60s. The 60s at yeah, that point. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, the 80s yeah. was your, your big grand adventure around. Yeah. The world. So yeah. I think after that, my dad said, oh, I better get these guys into sailing. And he was into sailing as Something well. Something safer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, um, uh, yeah, like I said, he was a, he'd been a sailor, you know, that um, since he was a kid, he must have got into it somehow. I'm not sure. He wasn't a wealthy man, but he, he was right, you know, right into his sailing. And, yeah. and eventually he took us to South Perth Yacht Club and bought us a little boat called uh, Flying Ant. And um, we started racing that in, at South Perth. And that's where we kind of got all our main sailing skills. I mean, when you race, race a yacht, you sort of really, really know, really learn how to sail properly mm. when you're racing. Yeah. Do you remember a, a point where you just first felt that thrill of being on the water and propelled along by 
by nature, by the winds yeah, swirling around you? I do, actually. Yeah, the first time when we bought our flying ant, uh, the, the guy we bought it off, you know, we'd never sailed a yacht before, but um, I remember the guy we bought it off um, said, oh, you know, he rigged it up for us and showed us how it all worked. And he said, okay, you guys can jump on and go for a sail. And we said, well, we don't know how to sail. We've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but the old man, my father said, yeah, go and have a go. It was only light. It wasn't that windy down at South Perth. So he jumped on the boat and I'll never forget the, the sensation of this little mm. boat just taking off in the wind. It was just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's been a love affair ever since. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so you, you go through schooling, obviously, you know, sailing is something you, you're all into as a family in a, in a pretty big way. Mm. Um, you finish school, you go on to university. What did you want to be at, at that point in time as a, as an adult, as an early, early, what did I want to early be? stage adult? Uh, well, like most 17 year olds, I had no idea what I wanted yeah. to be, <laughs> but, uh, like a lot of people, a lot of, you know, I got through Trinity college and I eventually went to UWA and did commerce degree. So that was sort of kind of a, just, you know, just seemed a, like the thing to do. Seemed like the thing to do. So, yeah. You know, I wasn't that much into commerce, but um, yeah, it just seemed a thing. You know, the thing to do was to get a degree, and, mm. and you know, so go, what go from there. So <laughs> what happens? Yeah, <laughs> and what happened was you came up with this probably harebrained idea to many people. Let's uh, let's get a boat. And let's sail around the world. Yeah. Well, did, did you remember a time when you first had that conversation with your mate? Um, not uh, well. I mean, we we when I was at uni, we had a, a, a we we bought another yacht. We bought a keelboat, uh, which is a twenty six foot um, plywood sort of boat that we bought from a guy in Bunbury, and we sailed it back uh, from Bunbury. My father and my younger brother sailed it back from Bunbury. Again, we had no idea. This is where my father was a bit of a gung ho sort of bloke, mm. you know. So the only advice we had when we bought this boat was. You know, to get from Bunbury to Perth, you just go north on the compass and eventually you'll come across Rotto and then you turn right. That, that was it. You know. <laughs> so Good never, directions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'll never forget the old man on that trip. It was m- myself and my younger brother and my dad. And, and the only provisions he had, we, we drove down to Bunbury and, and the only provisions we had was a, was a chicken that he bought and he, he bought a carton of beer as well just to keep him going for that trip. <laughs> <laughs> and we got, uh, we, we kind of got a couple of hours out of Bunbury and we, my brother and I, Dave, we started to feel a bit hungry so he pulled the chicken out and the chicken had gone gone off. And, and of course it, it had. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there was no, no food no, for no us. No built-in fridges on board, I'm <laughs> no. guessing. There you go. As long as the beers were cold. Well, plenty of beers for him but nothing yeah. for us, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure the hunger, you know, made you want to go faster. That's right, yeah. Mark, we need to take a quick break. Okay. But then we'll get right into your around-the-world adventures. Right this on. is Inspiring Stories. Mark Taylor is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. The story of Mark Taylor, who uh, at the early age of uh, 25 uh, completed his round-the-world adventure. In doing so, became the youngest West Australian uh, to achieve that feat. We're just about at the time uh, where this idea started to take shape, Mark. So uh, you've had this conversation with your mate. You don't have a boat at this point. That's obviously... Goal number one. That's right. You're going to go around the world. <laughs> That's a good start. We're going to need a boat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, where do you start? What sort of boat do you look at? 
having never sailed, you know, any great length. Yeah. Like, yeah. how do you know what boat to go for? How do you know how to start kidding out a boat for an okay, adventure of so that magnitude? What uh, the inspiration was John Sanders, I guess, originally. I mean, he had a boat called an SNS 34, which is mm. a Sparkman and Stevens 34, uh, 34 feet, which is a British design, um, beautiful yacht. Um, and it was made famous by um, uh, Sir Edward Heath, which is uh, an ex-British Prime Minister who did the Sydney Hobart it, and I think he won the division in it. So what they did is brought the mould out to Australia and, and uh, the Swarbrick brothers, who were yacht builders in Perth at the time, brought the mould out from, from the UK or brought, brought a, a mould out from the UK and then started producing these boats in, in Australia and they had their place out at Osmond Park there. And uh, John Sanders, I think, was one of the original guys that got one of the original boats and um, um, his boat was called Perry Benue. And uh, that was kind of a couple of years before our time, but, you know, he was in the news all the time because he originally that first boat that he had, this SNS-34, he did his first round-the-world trip in that, uh, which was, you know, it wasn't a non-stop trip, but that was his first trip mm. it was in that boat. So we were kind of growing up with... John Sanders in the news all the time with all the stuff that he used to do and, you know, all the feats that he – I mean, he's a magnificent sailor, John, and he's done a lot more sort of exciting stuff that we ever could do. I mean, he's done stuff by himself, you know, uh, around the world three times or whatever he's done. But ours was pretty pretty sort of basic compared to what he did. We were stopping and there was two of us on board. So, um, But he was the inspiration and, and he had the boat that we knew that could do the trip. So um, the boat was also available in Perth to be built. Um, Swarwick Brothers at the time um, uh, used to rent the moulds out. So what they did is you'd pay some money to go to their factory for a, a month and then do all the fibreglass work for the boat so they would supervise you laying out the hull. Um, so we did that. There was four of us at the time originally, and then one one of us, one of the guys dropped out, so there was three of us, and we went to the factory for a month and learned how to fiberglass and, and basically built the whole the whole boat, mm. the, the hull and deck. And were you pretty confident in what you were doing, given that it was going to have to withstand a pretty extraordinary trip? Uh, well, we were just providing the labour, really. I mean, yeah, there was, right. there's full supervision there. I mean, the, the, there was a few mistakes with the boat, but nothing sort of structural. <laughs> nothing that was going to make it sink. <laughs> no, nothing. And, and we 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 paid Swarbricks to put the keel on, which was the major one of the major sort of parts of the boat was attaching the keel to the boat. Yeah. And also putting the engine in and lining the engine up and all that sort of stuff. But other than that, it was just we we laid up this bare hull, uh, which was um, you know had the engine and the keel on it. And then we got a crane and we took it to one of my, the guy that sailed around the world with me was um, Peter Cole and his name, name was, and his dad had a joinery factory in Claremont and they owned the house next door. And um, uh, basically we we got a crane and took the boat over there and dug a hole in the ground and popped the boat in the ground because wow. they had the keel on it and um, propped it up and then you know, started fitting it out, um, putting all the furniture, you know, all because all we knew how to fiberglass, we could sort of start. Uh, fitting it out and we had other boats to, to copy from because at the time there was quite a few other people that had built SNS 34s and they were fitting them out at the same time so we, we had a bit of reference you know, yeah. to, as to what to do and what to yeah. put on and where to put it and how to yeah. so that's how it kind of eventuated and uh, we built this boat in the back of Pete's um, dad's uh, Joinery shop, not that we used his joinery shop much. He wouldn't let us near the, all the big machines and that. <laughs> but we used to sneak in there occasionally and grab some bits and pieces. <laughs> so for those who aren't familiar with yachts and, and boats generally, 
paint a picture for us. What's it like on board? You know, the creature comforts, the sleeping quarters. I mean, if you, how big is it? What have you got in there? Uh, well, it's 34 feet long, so it's not that big. It's like 10 metres or whatever it is. Um, it's it's um, It's got three or four bunks in it, but it's it's most comfortable with sort of two people in it. I mean, you mm. know, four, it can, on, on a race, you'd probably have six people on board, but, um, right. you know, for, for general living, two people was pretty comfortable, so... There was uh, there was no uh, no refrigeration. We didn't have any refrigeration. We had no an ice fridge. box. No fridge. Just no. an esky. Oh, just an ice box. That's yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. yeah so right. we'd buy ice occasionally, and then you know, it'd last for a couple of days, and then it'd melt, and then you just go without refrigeration most of the time. Uh, just basic sort of bunks, um, sleeping bunks with lee cloths, so you didn't fall out when it was rough. Um, basic little stove, like a little uh, like a camp stove, made a. a uh, run on metho because metho was a was a fuel of choice because it didn't ignite, it didn't blow up, mm. it was easy to put out with water. So it was just a two burner little metho stove. It it wasn't great. It didn't get that hot, so it took a while to, to heat things up. But um, yeah, metho was cheap and readily available, so it was it was a good thing to have. Yeah, had a toilet on board, but most of the time we'd sort of you know do it out the back in the bucket and chuck it over and you know it's quite hard to do it in a in a rough you know when the boat's moving all the time you, you're easier it's easier out in the cockpit um and uh, yeah that's no 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 instruments no no uh, satellite nav or anything like that it was just uh, we used a sextant and and a watch and um charts and uh, uh you have nautical tables to tell you what you know, to, to mm. break down your sights and all that sort of stuff. So that's kind of what it was pretty basic. Yeah, and, was, and you did a course as well, didn't you? In yeah, celestial. Yeah, yeah. Navigation. Yeah, I did that part time at Fremantle. So uh, Fremantle Tech when it was down in Fremantle. So, you know, celestial is quite a bit of work. Uh, it's quite detailed sort of stuff. There's a lot of maths, and and you used to use um, sight reduction tables. Um, you know, plotter uh, like plotters. Um, and you know you'd, you'd have to take a star sh- a sun shot three times a day. So you mm. take a shot in the morning, one at lunchtime or noon, which is the main one to get your latitude. And you'd take one in the afternoon, and you'd kind of work out roughly where you were. But we we're always never really one hundred percent sure about where we were. You know, within <laughs> <laughs> within a couple of cases. You cases. say it so flippantly. <laughs> and, and we also had a, a radio direction finder, which was a pretty handy little tool. So as you're approaching an island or, or, a, or a place, um, you could hone in on the, the beacon that they had at the, yeah. at the um, airport. Yeah. But that was like a couple of days out. So we're never really 100% sure, especially when we first started. Well, I was a navigator, but, you know, the first a uh, few times that we were making landfall, I was never quite confident it was going to pop up when it should have popped up, but it did most of the time. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm hearing this. It, it sounds like the ultimate, you know, boyhood adventure, yeah. that, you know, that you read about or that you see a, a depiction of on on, on TV. Yeah, well, but, we were sort you, of too far in it to turn it. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once we got to Bali and we're on the, on the way to Mauritius because one of the guys – Didier, um, he's a Mauritian. He, I went to school with him. He came out to Australia when Mauritius was a bit, you know, chaotic in the 60s. And I grew up with this guy called Didier and he was from Mauritius. So his big plan was not to go around the world, but to sail to Mauritius because he lived in Perth and went mm. to school. So he was one of the crew. He was on board. And uh, yeah, I mean, once we left Bali, we were on the Indian Ocean and there was no turning back once you're there. It's such a, a rough, you know, it's it's rough as hell and, and yeah. big, big swells and big mm. waves. It's a pretty amazing place. Mm. And yeah. Just on the navigation and the devices you had on board, mm. I mean, it sounds pretty 
primitive by today's standards. That is, yeah. In the event of something catastrophic, did you have any means of, of getting signal to people or uh, well, uh, getting help or was that just the risk days, you took and yeah, the, you're the, done? The EPIRB was just invented in those days. So we had oh. an EPIRB on board, but whether, you know, it was early days with EPIRBs and it was like, you know, it was this big, huge thing these days. They're tiny little compact things and they're used quite frequently. I mean, you have to have an EPIRB these days to go mm. off fishing off, off mm. Rio. So we had an EPIRB and luckily we never had to use it, but whether it switched on and whether it gave a signal, I've done no to idea. this day. <laughs> and so we did. It's really a hope for the best and see what happens sort of mission, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> and you just try and be conservative and make sure you don't break anything or, you know, yeah. hit anything or, you know. <laughs> Again, hope for the best. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what you do. I, I mean, I'm sure your, your parents loved that you'd taken this sense of adventure on board and, and, also, sailing was a big part of your life. But mm. what did they actually think of you and your mate, you know, putting a boat together and setting off around the world? Were they pleased for you, worried for you, proud of you? Um, well, I guess they were pretty worried at the time. I, looking back, I'd say my mother was definitely would have been worried. But, um, yeah, well, they're pretty supportive of, of what we wanted to do. I mean, I guess I was pretty... Didn't try to talk you out of it at all? No, no, no. didn't try and talk us out of it, no. I guess I was sort of, a, you know, I'm the type of person that once, and my mother and father probably knew this, is once I get an idea into my head, there's yeah. no stopping me. <laughs> so don't bother. Don't, don't waste bother, your yeah. breath. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And I've got to ask you as well, just before we get to a break, mm. you know, you and you and Pete, you're obviously good, good mates. I mean, we all enjoy spending time with our friends, but... You've taken that to a whole new level, <laughs> being on a boat, bobbing yeah. around in the ocean for, you know, weeks and months. Yeah, well, you've got to get along with that person, right? Yeah, well, he's <laughs> he's a pretty easy guy to get along with. I mean, he's a pretty laid back sort of chap. But um, I mean, the reality of sailing is when you're sailing two up like that, you sort of don't really interact that much because there's so much to do. You've got to really? sleep. Well, you've got to sleep and you've got to cook and you've got to navigate and you've got to trim sails and you've got to be on watch. So, so does one person sleep while the other person? Yeah, yeah. Does the work on board. Yeah, that's normally what happens. You, so you're on shifts, basically. Yeah, so you never get more than a couple of hours sleep at, at you know, when you're on a passage, which, you know, can be two two weeks or three weeks mm. or the, the longest one we have is a month. So when you're on a passage like that, you've got to be sort of, um, you can't just go to bed at night and yeah. turn the lights off. You, you, yeah. You're kind of up all night. You know? So there were no moments where you just got to sit on the edge you know, gaze across the horizon at the oh, sunset, there was plenty have, of a, those, have a beer. <laughs> there was plenty of those. Don't worry yeah. about that. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. What's the point otherwise? That's right, yeah. All right. Um, all sorts of other parts of this uh, extraordinary adventure as well, which we'll get into right after we take another break. Mark Taylor is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the inspiring story of Mark Taylor, uh, round-the-world sailor, uh, an extraordinary feat that he achieved uh, back in the early to mid-'80s. Now, Mark, you're on the water, heading north. Carnarvon, I understand, is where things started to go a little bit pear-shaped. Yeah. Talk us through that part of your adventure. Yeah, well, that was uh, in the Bali race in 1981, the first Bali race they had from Fremantle to Bali, and uh, there was quite a big fleet that went to Bali. Um, 
So this is your first big road test, if this you This like. is our first big road test yeah. for navigation, for sailing. You know, this is this is it. This is yeah. leaving Frio and we're on. We're and this going. is the boat that, that you and Pete put together? That's right. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 so we're all on board. Proper workout. Proper workout. And uh, there was three of us on board, myself, Peter and Didier, the guy from Mauritius. Yep. And I somehow convinced my father to come along too. So oh, right. Was, yeah, yeah. Neville, Neville is now deceased, but Neville... Um, so he was the fourth member of the crew. So yeah. anyway, we took off from Freo and it all was going well and, you know, we were racing. So we had to put the spinnaker up and, you know, we had to try and mm. go fast and that was probably not such a good idea because the boat was um, pretty well overladen with food because we knew that we were going to carry on to Mauritius after. Yeah. So we had the boat chock-a-block full of canned food and right. beers and all that sort of stuff. And Important stuff. Important stuff because we <laughs> knew that in Bali it probably wasn't going to – in 81, Bali was a bit different, so there yeah, wasn't going to be a lot available up there. So we'd, we'd kind of loaded it up pretty full. And um, anyway, we found ourselves off Carnarvon, about 70 k's out from Carnarvon and the breeze, the southwesterly breeze, as it does around northwest Cape and Carnarvon and those sort of places, it really starts to crank. And uh, middle of the night um, – it was getting a bit hairy, but we were racing, so we, you know, we didn't want to sort of like get left behind. In the middle of the night, there was this big bang, big twang, and um, the steering. We had a, a wheel steering on the boat, and they had sort of wires that connected up to the rudder, and one of the wires just went snap just, just just popped. Yeah, really? so yeah, we're right out in the middle of the ocean in about 40, 35 knots of breeze, and no steering, the sails up. Terrifying. Terrifying, yeah. It was pretty bad, yeah. And my father was the worst. He was he was pretty, you know, I mean, he obviously knew that we were in a, a bit of danger. So anyway, we quickly dropped the sails. Um, and, you know, once you drop the sails, it kind of becomes a little bit more, you know, it's it's more you're just bobbing around, really nothing's going to happen. Mm. You've dropped the sails. And we sort of, uh, we had like an emergency tiller situation, which was like a T-bar thing that you'd stick on the on the rudder like that and steer it like that. So we sort of managed to get through to the the, the, the dawn, you know, the, the first light. And then uh, we had to work out what, what had gone wrong. So we had to unpack one of the seat lockers and get all the stuff out to get underneath the boat to where the steering sort of was. And then, you know, I, I was the one that did it. So I had to crawl right underneath the boat. Not at, not in the water, but under in in the locker to get mm. underneath, and I saw immediately what had happened, and I knew that you know we were we were, we were gone for the race. Mm. So anyway, uh, we the the sun came up and it was a nice day, so things started to look pretty good in the morning. So we we had the engine on, and we just motored into Carnarvon, which took us twenty four hours to motor into Carnarvon from where we were right, right. out to sea. So we're, we're a long way out. Yeah, and uh, we eventually got to Carnarvon and. Um, and we got we arrived in the in the in the in the dark, but uh, my father, being the Avis Renicar manager, knew the Avis Renicar guy up in Carnarvon, and he handy, he, yeah, it was handy. <laughs> <laughs> so he got on the radio. We had a radio, and he got on the radio and organised this guy. His name was Chippy to come out and sort of guide us through this because Carnarvon's quite a tricky place to get into as yeah. well as shallow water some, and some treacherous coastline there. Yeah, and especially at night, you know, we had no idea. We didn't have charts of Carnarvon, I don't think so. Um, Anyway, middle of the night, so we approached Carnarvon. We could see the, the light, uh, and anyway, out of the out of the darkness comes Chippy and his little fourteen foot tinny, <laughs> you know, bouncing around in the ocean. And uh, he guided us through the through all the navigation bits and got us into the harbour and um, you know got some food for us and all that sort of stuff. So we're tied up there safe. And then the next day, I think it was, we had a good look at it and we decided that we could probably get the part from Perth flown up. Uh, overnight, and which my my father, my old man, organised for us. He was probably quite a good organiser, you know. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
anyway, the part arrived straight away. We got it. Uh, some we had to get something welded in Carnarvon, and Chippy organised that for us. And brilliant. Got it all back together and pulled the sails up, and off we get off we went about, uh, again in the race. And we're you know by this stage we're miles behind. The whole fleet had just disappeared. So you know we're on our own. So anyway, we thought we might as well yeah we're going to keep going, and we kept yeah. going. And in fact, that race uh, one of the boats was sunk by a whale, and that was just what? yeah it got hit by a whale. Um, it's, wow. Yeah, it was just uh, north of us from where we were. We were sort of kind of a little bit of, away from it, but. It uh, apparently got um, the boat got between the mother and the calf, and and the mother panicked a bit and just uh, bowled this boat over and put a big hole in, and they sank within oh, minutes. Right. Yeah, and they, luckily they got picked up by one of the other. I think it was a, I think there was a race control boat that was following the fleet up, and they they picked them Happened up in the water. Yeah, wow. so it was a pretty eventful trip that uh, barley trip. There's a few guys got lost when one boat um, his navigator wasn't spot on, and he ended up sort of right up in Sumatra somewhere. It, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so it took him a few days to get back to Bali. He eventually so, got there. so the GPS has been a, a very, very handy. It's very, very difficult in, in the ocean to know where you parts. are, and yeah, you, you've got no idea where you are. Even if you can see land, it's very, very difficult to know where you are. Yeah, you know, without a GPS, I mean, GPS is just fantastic. It's almost cheating now, though. It's isn't cheating. It? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know exactly to a, to a millimetre where you are, but in those days, it was. It was a little bit hit and miss with the navigation, so it could very easily go, go astray. And I remember um, the one of the Swarbrick brothers, the people that built um, our boat, they had a boat and they were in the Bali race and they actually hit a reef coming into Bali and right. got, their boat got stuck on the reef and they couldn't get it off and it basically got stuck there for, for days until they got it off and it had a massive big hole in it. Wow. So these guys were legend sailors and knew exactly what they were doing, but they ended up on a reef and yeah, mm. there was lots of incidents it happened to like the best that. of them. Yeah, it happened to yeah. the best of them, yeah. 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 So that incident didn't put the fear into you at all. It didn't obviously put you off uh, going on a, a much bigger adventure. I mean, you had some local knowledge there with your dad and, yeah. you know, Chippy on the ground in, in Carnarvon. <laughs> you, you wouldn't have those sorts of local contacts no, you know, well, when you're off into the far reaches of the world. Yeah, I think that was a good lesson for us, but I yeah. think it was a lesson that you'd need to be very conservative when you're in the ocean and you need, you know, we were racing and we we're overloaded and it mm. was, we've, we've made the mistake. I mean, we shouldn't have been in that situation. And it was probably a good thing that, that happened there where we had the help. So from then on, we were pretty conservative about how much sail we'd have up and, yeah. you know, not sort of overpowering the boat. And, and especially at night, sort of making sure that you didn't have to change sails at night, sort of just 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 taking mm. it really easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you set off around the world. Um, there are all sorts of different ways you can, you know, do a, a round the world trip, aren't there? Yeah. What actually, by the rules, what constitutes a legitimate, verified, certified round the world trip? Uh, well, if you want to go in the Guinness Book of Records, like John Sanders, you have to sort of go from east to west to the same spot, obviously, uh, but you have to cross the equator and go north of a certain latitude, which I'm not sure it, it is. Right. You know, but, I mean, we weren't after any records or anything. Yeah. We just wanted to actually sail around the world. So, yeah. But I know there's rules about, you know, where you go and how you do it. Yeah. And all that stuff. But our trip was pretty much confined to the trade winds, you know, which are the predictable winds north and south of the equator. So you're going in the right direction. You've got the breeze in the right direction. So you're not having to tack too much. You sort of got a, kind of got it behind you most of the way. So the trade winds is a route that a lot of people take to go around the world. And there's lots of people that are actually sailing around the world from America and, you know, mm. all sorts of places we ran across. Everywhere you'd stop, you'd, you'd get a whole heap of people from a whole, whole different 
you know, mm. different types of yachts that are doing the same sort of thing. So mm. the trade winds is pretty comparatively compared to going around the Southern Ocean, around Cape Cape Horn and those sort mm. of places. It's pretty easy, really. Favourite places, scary places, unexpected things that you came across on your travels? Uh, was I mean, they're all pretty good. Uh, they're all places that you'd probably normally not go. They're all islands that most people would never visit. So they're um, you know they're pretty unique. Um, I guess Mauritius was was one of the good spots that we went. That we stayed there for quite a few months because that was after the big trip across the Indian Ocean, our first big trip, and that was sort of kind of fuel we got there. You know, mm. and we just sort of relaxed, and we weren't quite sure whether we'd go around the world at that point. But um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Pete and I decided that all we needed to do was get a, an Aries wind vane, which is a self steerer, which we didn't have up to that point. We were hand steering the whole way, so. Again, my father helped out. He organised to get one shipped out from England, which is a, it's like a contraption you put on the back of the boat, which works with a vane, a wind vane, and it actually steers the boat. So yeah, right. all of a sudden you become, it's a much more pleasant experience if you don't have to sit out and steer all day and all night because mm. someone's got to be hanging onto the wheel, you mm. know, but with a self-steerer, you just whack it on and set the course and, and you can basically just lie down and read books and pop out and have a, ch- have a check around every, <laughs> every now and then. Sounds delightful. It was fantastic. Yeah, the self-steerer, you couldn't do it without a self-steerer. That just makes, makes the world a difference. Yeah. So once we got that from, from England, we fitted that in Port Lewis Harbour, Harbour which is in Mauritius, and um, that was kind of the point where we decided we we're going to keep going because it was mm. quite hard to come back to Perth from there because it's the winds in the wrong direction. So it would have been a pretty tough trip. So we thought we'd just as well we'd, keep yeah, going, keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what we did. Um, any scary things along the way? Pirates? Yeah. Well, unexpected. There was cyclones. Lots, there was lots of that sort of stuff. You know, bits and mm. pieces like that. Yeah. There was quite quite a few heavy storms that we had to endure. Um, you know, that was just par for the course because we didn't have any sort of instruments to tell us where to, mm. what, the, what the weather was doing. We just sort of pulled up the anchor and took off. So, you know, we just copped whatever came our way with the weather. Mm. And there was a couple of incidences, you know, one coming into Sydney, we got rolled over. Coming into Sydney, we got caught in a massive storm. So that was pretty scary. We were um, sort of, you know, itching, itching to get back to Australia because we've been away for a while and Sydney was the place that we we're going to make our first landfall. So we're kind of pretty keen to get there we got caught in this mm. savage storm and ended up sort of three days going backwards and you know took about took about a week longer than we thought it would yeah oh well and we also we also ran out of metho on that trip too so <laughs> we didn't have any food for the only food we had for those two weeks we left fiji going for sydney and pete um, who was on board decided he wanted to clean the windows of the boat yeah, right. so he used a little bit of metho that we had left and he diluted it with a bit of water so oh pete so, yeah, he what cleaned all the windows and I looked at the metho thing and I said, oh, we've got plenty to get to Sydney. There's enough there to go. And then, of course, you know, we get a couple of days out of Fiji, pull, filled the metho up in the stove and nothing happened. It wouldn't ignite because oh, no. it was full of water. <laughs> Pate. Yeah, Pate, yeah. I bet you haven't <laughs> let him forget that <laughs> no, in no. all the years since. So we spent two weeks eating raw spaghetti, raw eggs, uh, powdered milk, you know, cans that hadn't been heated up. It wasn't very pretty. Yeah. Yum. <laughs> You ever throw a line in over the edge? Yeah, yeah, we caught lots of fish. Yeah, yeah. we used to quite, yeah, we'd always have a big trawling line out when we get close to land because you'd normally pick up a couple of good fish on the way in. And Yeah. We used to get flying fish at night that, that were attracted to the instrument, the uh, compass light, so they'd, they'd fly out of the water and hit the boat and yeah, right. land in the cockpit and we'd just oh. pick them up and eat them in the Handy. morning. Yeah, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Don't even have to bait a hook for that. That's right. That's great. <laughs> um, we need to take a break. After that, um, the end of your adventure... 
and and what happened next? We'll get into that and okay. how you transition back to being on the right. on the boat for so long, <laughs> uh, back in Perth and back on dry land. This is inspiring stories. Round the world sailor Mark Taylor is our special guest. We'll hear the final part of his adventure next. You're listening to inspiring stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to inspiring stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to inspiring stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest is uh, round the world sailor, Mark Taylor. Mark, how much have you dined out on your story? I mean, it's almost 40 years ago. You've got a lot of mileage out of this story, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, my brothers keep saying it's a story that keeps giving, isn't it? <laughs> and, um, you know, like fishing tales, do you just add a little bit every time you reflect and share an anecdote? No, look, it's pretty much the truth. I mean, when I'm with Pete, there's stories pop up that, like I said before, that you'd forgotten the detail of it, but it's pretty well exactly what yeah. how it was. I mean, the, the memories are so vivid that... Um, you know, mm. you can just recall bits and pieces and you can recall all the details. So, yeah, there's nothing sort of yeah. embellished about it for sure. Yeah. Are you and Pete still great mates? Yeah, yeah, we played yeah. golf together. You know, I went yeah. to his um, his son's wedding the other day. So, yeah, we're pretty good mates. And our kids went to the same school and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you finish your, your trip, you've obviously spent, you know, a lot of time together and had this amazing journey, the two of you. Mm. Um, you know, with others along the way as well, but principally the two of you, you know, you get back onto dry land. What do you do then? It's like, all right, Pete, I'll catch you later. Yeah, see well, you tomorrow, see you next week. Let's yeah, go well, for a sale we, we, we pulled up at Royal Perth and put the boat away and got off for the first time for weeks and I went home, he went home. Um, he started working at his dad's business, the joinery shop that it was yeah. in Claremont, so he was destined to take that over. So he basically went his own way and... Um, uh, you know, we caught up with each other mm. occasionally and had a few beers and all that sort of stuff and yep. went sailing. But, uh, yeah, he went his own way and I went my own way and we'd sort of just split up at the time. Um, Needed some time apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what <laughs> happened? understandable. <laughs> what happened to me is um, we we both were pretty keen on windsurfing, but we didn't have a, a yeah. board on board. Um, windsurfing had just been invented in those days, mm. so we didn't. We did a bit around the world. People, you know, had windsurfers, so we sort of borrowed them and had a go. But we both sort of wanted to get into it a bit, so I... The very next day, the very next morning after I got had my first sleep in my bed at back home. I, I should say the very next day you were on the front page of the West, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So everyone knew us, you know, yeah. Well, like, the, the oh, West was big deal. Mark's most, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made it. <laughs> <laughs> so That yeah. would have been quite a big deal, though. I mean, you know, all of mum and dad's worries, I'm sure there was an extra sense of pride there. Well, yeah. I mean, the West, you know, as you know, in those days was the, was the main news, you know, mm. everyone, everyone got the West and everyone knew, uh, uh, you know, everyone, I mean, every, the West was on everyone's doorstep in those days. There was mm. no internet or anything like that. So everyone kind of knew that we'd got back and, um, you know, local celebrity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We dined, dined out on that for a little bit. I but bet. Yeah. It waned yeah. after a while. <laughs> <laughs> got, got a bit tiresome to people. But yeah. as I say, I, the, I, I, I wanted to get back into windsurfing and I got up the next morning and I, I didn't have any money. We had no money when we got back and we we, yep. were, we didn't have a lot of money on our whole trip. So, you know, we we were actually ended up borrowing money off our parents in the last sort of couple of months. We did work occasionally, but yeah, we were very low on money and we didn't really live it up at all. We were pretty frugal the whole time. But anyway, I got up the next morning and I, I, I said to my mother, I said, look, you know, I know I've, I've been 
sort of bumming off you for a while, but you know, can you lend me some money just to buy a windsurfer? That's all I want to get. So <laughs> she said, yeah, no worries. So went straight down to Court Marine in Stirling Highway and I walked in the door and the guy behind the counter sort of had got the West that morning. He said, oh, you know, mm, fantastic. You look familiar. Yeah, you yeah. Look familiar. yeah. <laughs> and he says, um, I, and I said, look, I want to buy a windsurfer. So I, I got the windsurfer together and gave him the money. And he says, oh, look, do you want a job? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I didn't have a job. You know, I didn't have anything to do. So... He said that we need some windsurfing instructors down at the river to teach people how to windsurf. And I said, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to teach people and I, you know, I'm not a great windsurfer. I only just sort of picked it up. Said, he said, oh, you'll be right. You know, there'll be other guys down there. So I said, yeah, all right. And he says, all right. Down there at 8 o'clock the next morning to do the windsurfing lessons and then basically, you know, that was, that was the beginning of my career because mm. I've got a windsurfing shop. Still, still today. to this day. Today, yeah. yeah. You, you still get out in the water and still love it, still get that same thrill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, windsurfing's fantastic. I mean, I'm a member of um, Mount Space Sailing Club and we have a, a big fleet of windsurfers down there, which we race uh, Fridays, um, Sundays. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a one design class, but yeah, I'm, I'm out on the board all mm. the time. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just going back to that first night or the first little while after you got back to Perth and enjoyed some of the creature comforts. What were the things that you cherished most when you got back? Was it the the warm bed, the privacy, the you know, the stable land underfoot? Uh, uh, what what yeah. was it that you Well it wasn't the privacy you because you know, because I came from a big family, so it wasn't yeah, the privacy. I think I was thrown into a room with my brother that night. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think the the best thing was was home cooking, like having a nice piece of toast and having a nice sort of cup of coffee and mm. nice steak and I mean we really did miss I mean like I said we didn't have a lot of money so we really missed sort of that style of you know yep. beautiful food that you get from your mother and at home and in Perth you know so that yeah. was that for me was the big thing was was actually having really good food again mm. yeah um in in terms of the the experiences of being out on this incredible adventure um I suppose the idea of being you know on this small craft on the vast open seas it's not for everyone is it no you know, if you if you tried to to sort of sell it to someone, I mean, apart from just the you know it's a great adventure and you'll see the world, yeah. that's a given. Yeah. But I mean, how do you how do you describe just the experience of it? You know, just being out, just propelled around by by nature, just you know, not knowing what's ahead of you. How do you how do you kind of describe that experience to someone? Uh, yeah, well, like you say, it's not for everyone. It's quite an uncomfortable existence. It's wet. Mm. It's cold. It's it's rough, you know. I mean, you never, you never. It's never like dead flat, smooth. It's always it's it's motion the whole time. So you're yeah. banging and crashing, and you know, it's it's, it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. The, no, the sailing. There's an it. element of of true survival to it, isn't there? Yeah, well, not really. I mean, it's it, it's you know, I mean, you, I guess the thing for me was the sailing background. I mean, that was the thing that 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 we've well for both of us that that was mm. really the key. I mean, it's really about the love of sailing mm. and. and like you say, getting propelled in a, in a small yacht without any motor, and 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 actually going from point A to point B, which might be five thousand miles away, and, and that's what it is. It's about the sailing. It's not about the, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable existence. It's not great. Mm. I mean, it's very hard to sell someone that's not a sailor. I must say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's the vastness of it, the connection with nature. You know, I, yeah. I don't want to sort of invite you to get deeply philosophical if you're not that sort of person. But I mean, that that connection that you have to the to the to the sky, and you know, the stars oh, yeah. in the sky that are, that can be your map. Yeah. Well, you that, get, essentially, do you do you miss that when you're not out in the ocean? 
Uh, you do a little bit because you get a you get a, a real overload of that sort of stuff. It's just beautiful, you know. Some of the nights and some of the night mm. skies and the the dolphins following you, which happens all almost every day. You have dolphins sort of cruising around, you mm. know, and it's just magical, magical, yeah. yeah. And then you just get you get overloaded with that because you just get it every day, all day, all night. So it's fantastic. I mean, oh, that's yeah, part hear of the it. dolphins again. Yeah. <laughs> Would you do it again? Uh, look, yeah, I'm. Getting a bit past it now, but I've given Jan, John Sanders age. Yeah, <laughs> John's done. John's got a few up on you. What do you know? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's pathetic. Oh, look, I'd love to, Tim. It'd be, <laughs> I, I definitely wouldn't say no if, if yeah. you know the the time and the and the, the opportunity was there again. But um, yeah, yeah I, I can't say you know it's going to be there. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. 40th anniversary tour. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. good <laughs> Assuming point. the borders are open, of course. <laughs> that's right. You'd have to navigate your way around by uh, quarantine arrangements that's as you right. went. Yeah. That would be. Harder than you know, getting around without a yeah without a GPS. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just very quickly, windsurfing shop is still basically your your full time gig. Yeah. Windsurfing itself has changed a lot over the years, isn't it? Are you still a classic windsurfer, or are you into kite surfing or wave jumping and all the other different um, styles of windsurfing that you can try these days? Yeah, well, what is it that still gives you that thrill? Uh, well, I mean, windsurfing's pretty much sailing. It's another yeah. form of sailing, really. But yeah, like you say, there's so many different disciplines. There's, um, you know, the new, the latest thing is is foiling. So there's a lot of foiling stuff coming out these days. Um, uh, wingdings, they call them. Um, foiling windsurfers. Um, I don't do a lot in kite surfing, but uh, I have done a bit in kite surfing over the time. But um, you know, uh, there's lots of wave sailing guys that do wave jumping at Margaret River. There's guys that um, specialise in speed sailing with GPSs. They do it at um, down in the Mandurah Inlet, which is a dead flat, one of the best spots in the world to go mm. at high speed. So there's so many different disciplines in windsurfing and it's still a very big sport worldwide and mm. uh, it's still an Olympic sport. So, And a lot of a lot of really serious yachties do windsurfing as well, like uh, America's Cup guys and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's got an appeal for all those sort of guys. I mean, it's all just part of sailing really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's capturing the wind. The difference is you get wet occasionally because you fall in the water. <laughs> and I know you were gunning for uh, the Masters Games last year, which, like many things in 2021, unfortunately got uh, cancelled by COVID. Mm. Um, is competing still something that uh, that you, you're pretty keen to pursue in the years ahead? Yeah, yeah. COVID competing. permitting? Yeah, well, we still compete every week at, at Mount Space, mm. so... Competing for me is on a windsurfer. It's um, it's great fun. It's everyone's got the same gear, and uh, we're racing you know, every Sunday. And we've got mm. the state championships coming up at Mounts Bay in about three weeks, which we're expecting sort of forty or fifty competitors, like individuals with their own windsurfers. So that's a pretty big event. Yeah. And, um, you're racing for me is where it's at. I mean, I don't really have time to pursue the other disciplines. You need to have a bit of time and go down the you know, wherever you're going and wait for the wind, wait yeah. for the right conditions and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. yeah, windsurfing, racing, you can do it in zero knots mm. or, or 30 knots. So you don't have mm. to sort of, when you go down for a race, you know, you'll go out for a windsurf, you know, at that certain time, you don't sort of, you know, have to drive here or drive there. You just go down the river and away you go. Away you go. Mm. Well, I can still see that you've got the buzz from it clearly, but let's start planning that 40th anniversary around the world trip, eh? <laughs> no worries, Tim. Seems like as good a time as any. Mark, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's an incredible story and uh, one that many will only dream of, few will actually get to do. So congratulations on doing it and keep dining out on that story. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> uh, and it's been a pleasure to meet you too. It's been really good. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.